Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 6, Chapter 6. Speransky makes quite an impression on Andre. What do you think of him? And do you think Andre will finally find the satisfaction that he missed out on in his marriage and the military, or will he be disillusioned here in Petersburg as well? I'm currently rearranging my microphone while I talk. Um, difficult chapter for me. I really struggled to pay attention in uh, last night's chapter. But I think the gist of it is that there's this Speransky guy who is, I think, a commander-in-chief. Is that right? Or he's a commander? He's a big deal in the military, at least. Um, he'd just come from a meeting with the emperor, Alexander, and went straight to speaking to Andre. And actually showed some respect towards Andre, so that's a, that's a big deal for Andre. Angel of the Dawn said, uh, "The titles should say Chapter Five, not Six. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yep, I did mess that up. Thank you. Um, I was a bit confused by all the sudden talk of reformations and the friction between liberals and conservatives, including both Bolkonsky's ideas for military changes and the reforms apparently being proposed by Speransky." I might task myself with looking up some more historical context. If anyone knows any good resources, please let me know. That'd be great. And if you find them, um, do put them into the current day's conversation. Um, and that way I'll pick them up for the podcast for that day. If you go back and comment on previous chapters on the previous threads, they don't get picked up in the daily conversation. Um so it's better to do it that way. More eyes will go across it as well. I don't mind in the daily conversation if we refer back to previous um, chapters or if we throw back and, and answer an unanswered question from earlier. I think that's actually a good thing to do. Warren Kovafifi says, It's similar to how Andre admired Napoleon. I think Andre now admires someone like Speransky. At first, Andre seemed interested in obtaining glory like Bonaparte, but now he wants to obtain influence, something that Speransky is in great supply of. I think Andre is more suited for this sort of career than perhaps that of a military officer, so I'm predicting he finds some success. He already seems to have the attention and interest of the Petersburg bureaucrats. If Andre isn't as successful as he hopes, though, or if his goals don't come to be at all, I can see him reverting back to the jaded and removed Andre that Pierre encountered. Isaria says, I really appreciated how quickly Andre recognized Speransky's influence. Unlike Pierre, who was swept up in the compliments that accompanied his abrupt shift, uh, abrupt shift in station earlier in the book, Andre has the savvy to recognize subtle manipulations that occur. It enhances my respect for the character a great deal. Um, a very abrupt change for Andre. He's, one minute he's completely given up on the military, and then, you know, a couple of chapters later, he's way back into it, and not only that, he's already sort of gained influence since his last military uh, efforts. So... I think um, 
it's fair to assume Andre is going to do well in this setting. I think it's always been obvious, though, that he would. Um, it's been his calling since the start of the book. He's been basically saying that his father was a very successful, uh, had a very successful military career, and is still respected in that field. And um, you know, we know Andre is, despite all the other things he might be, he is smart. He is level-headed. He is, um, I don't know, like, I guess tenacious might be the word, you know? Is that the word? Maybe not. But you know what I mean. He gets things done. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so, uh, we should be surprised that he's doing well in the military. Okay, let's read. Let's keep reading. Short, a short game's a good game, right? Is that what they say? So let's keep moving. Chapter 6. During the first weeks of his stay in Petersburg, Prince André felt the whole trend of thought he had formed during his life of seclusion quite overshadowed by the trifling cares that engrossed him in that city. On returning home in the evening, he would jot down in his notebook four or five necessary calls or appointments for certain hours. The mechanism of life, the arrangement of the day so as to be in time everywhere, absorbed the greater part of his vital energy. He did not, sorry, he did nothing, did not even think or find time to think, but only talked and talked successfully of what he had thought while in the country. He sometimes noticed with dissatisfaction that he repeated the same remark on the same day in different circles, but he was so busy for whole days together that he had no time to notice that he was thinking of nothing. As he had done on their first meeting in at Kochebe's, Speransky produced a strong impression on Prince André on the Wednesday when he received him tete-a-tete at his own house and talked to him long and confidentially. To Bolkonsky, so many people appeared contemptible and insignificant creatures, and he so longed to find someone, the living ideal of that perfection towards which he strove, that he readily believed that in Speransky he had found his this ideal of a perfectly rational and virtuous man. Had Speransky sprung from the same class as himself, and possessed the same breeding and traditions, Bolkonsky would soon have discovered his weak, human, unheroic sides, but as it was, Speransky's strange and logical turn of mind inspired him with respect all the more because he did not quite understand him. Moreover, Speransky, either because he appreciated the other's capacity or because he considered it necessary to win him to his side, showed off his dispassionate, calm reasonableness before Prince André and flattered him with that subtle flattery which goes hand in hand with self-assurance and consists in a tacit assumption that one's companion is the only man besides oneself capable of understanding the folly of the rest of mankind and the reasonableness and profundity of one's own ideas. During their long conversation on Wednesday evening, Speransky more than once remarked, we regard everything that is above the common level of rooted custom or with a smile, but we want the wolves to be fed and the sheep to be safe, or they cannot understand this, and all in a way that seemed to say, we, you and I, understand what they are and who we are. 
This first long conversation with Speransky only strengthened in Prince Andre the feeling he had experienced toward him at their first meeting. He saw in him a remarkable, clear-thinking man of vast intellect who, by his energy and persistence, had attained power, which he was using solely for the welfare of Russia. In Prince Andrei's eyes, Speransky was the man he would himself have wished to be, one who explained all the facts of life reasonably, considered important only what was rational, and was capable of applying the standard of reason to everything. Everything seemed so simple and clear in Speransky's exposition that Prince Andrei involuntarily agreed with him about everything. If he replied and argued, it was only because he wished to maintain his independence and not submit to Speransky's opinions entirely. Everything was right and everything was as it should be. Only one thing disconcerted Prince Andre. This was Speransky's cold, mirror-like look, which did not allow one to penetrate to his soul and his delicate white hands which Prince Andre involuntarily watched as one does watch the hands of those who possess power. This mirror-like gaze and those delicate hands irritated Prince Andre. He knew not why. He was unpleasantly struck, too, by the excessive contempt for others that he observed in Speransky, and by the diversity of lines of argument he used to support his he used to support his opinions. He made use of every kind of mental device except analogy, and passed too boldly, it seemed, to Prince Andre from one to another. Now he would take up the position of a practical man and condemn dreamers, now that of a satirist and laugh ironically at his opponents, now grow severely logical or suddenly rise to the realm of metaphysics. This last resource was one he very frequently employed. He would transfer a question to metaphysical heights, pass on to definitions of space, time and thought, and having deduced the refutation he needed, would again descend to the level of the original discussion. In general, the trait of Speransky's mentality which struck Prince Andre most was his absolute and unshakable belief in the power and authority of reason. It was evident that he thought that the thought could never occur to him, which to Prince Andre seemed so natural, namely that it is after all impossible to express all one thinks, and that he had never felt the doubt. Is not all I think and believe nonsense? And it was just this peculiarity of Speransky's mind that particularly attracted Prince Andre. During the first period of their acquaintance, Bolkonsky felt a passionate admiration for him similar to that which he had once felt for Bonaparte. The fact that Speransky was the son of a village priest, and that stupid people might meanly despise him on account of his humble origin, as in fact many did, caused Prince Andre to cherish his sentiment for him the more and unconsciously to strengthen it. On that first evening, Bolkonsky spent with him, having mentioned the commission for the revision of the Code of Laws, Speransky told him sarcastically that the commission had existed for a 150 years, had cost millions, and had done nothing, except that Rosenkampf had stuck labels on the corresponding paragraphs of their different codes. And that is all the state has for the millions it has spent, said he, we want to give the Senate new jur juridical, jur juridical powers, but we have no laws. That is why it is a sin for men like you, Prince, not to serve in these times. Prince Andre said that for that work and education in jurisprudence was needed, which he did not possess. 
but nobody possesses it, so what would you have? It is a vicious circle from which we must break a way out. A week later, Prince Andre was a member of the Committee on, Regula- on Army Regulations, and what he had not at all expected was chairman of a section of the Committee for the Revision of the Laws. At Speransky's request, he took the first part of the civil code that was being drawn up, and with the aid of the Code Napoleon and the Institute of Justinian, he worked at formulating the section on personal rights. All right, there we go. Andre has a new gig, I guess. Um, some clarity, maybe. I'm, that went over my head a bit. Again, these chapters are very difficult to soak in. Um, so if you feel up for it, a um, explain like I'm five in the comments would be great. A old Eli five. Um, all right, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.